Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Today and for the upcoming weeks, because, well, it's coming up on Halloween, I'll be covering ghost stories. Now, the thing with ghost stories is that there's always usually some kind of crime behind it, whether it be a murder, a body disposal, or even death by suicide. In any case, otherworldly things just seem to hang around. This episode is about Bobby Mackey's Music World, whose tagline is, Come for the ghosts, stay for the music. I do want to make a quick note here. If you are a regular listener or watcher of paranormal shows, you no doubt have heard about Bobby Mackey's. That being said, some of the information you may know or often hear about about Bobby Mackey's has been handed down for years and it's been retold repeatedly. However, some of the stories are not exactly exact. That being said, if you want evidence to back up what you think you already know from stories you may have heard or seen on some television shows, you might be a tad disappointed in what you learn here. Now, this is not to say that Bobby Mackey's isn't haunted. It most definitely is. It just may not be haunted by who you think. Wilder, Kentucky is a town of somewhere around 3,000 plus people. It sits very close to the Ohio border and is part of the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky metro area. It is also known as the home of a bar named Bobby Mackey's Music World, which is reported to be the most haunted bar in America. Before entering the bar, you are greeted with a sign that says, quote, Warning to our patrons. This establishment is reported to be haunted. Management is not responsible and cannot be held liable for any actions of any ghosts slash spirits on these premises. Now, before it was Bobby Mackey's, it had previously had at least two businesses in its place. In the 1890s, there was a slaughterhouse near the location of what is now Bobby Mackey's. In this slaughterhouse, the workers would drain all of the animal blood down a well that eventually led out to the Licking River. Also near the location in 1895, a woman's headless body was found along Alexandria Pike near Highland Avenue. Now, this is about five miles away from Wilder. The headless woman turned out to be a 20-year-old named Pearl Bryan. She had been murdered by her boyfriend, Scott Jackson, and his friend, Alonzo Walling. Pearl was reportedly five months pregnant at the time of her death. Prior to Pearl's body being found, Pearl had gotten contact with Scott Jackson and was then introduced to his friend, Alonzo Walling, and they agreed to meet in Cincinnati, which is just a few miles from the Kentucky border. Pearl thought that Jackson was going to marry her, But when she learned that he wanted her to have an abortion, she tried to leave. Some workers were having lunch at the time, and Pearl was heard to say, quote, I'm going back to my home 
And Scott Jackson, you will have to answer to my brother Fred for this. The two men and Pearl visited Dave Wallingford's saloon and were in a sitting room there. Now, Jackson and Walling were drinking whiskey and Pearl was drinking a non-alcoholic drink. A waiter at the bar saw Scott Jackson put something in Pearl's drink. And later on, Jackson and Walling were identified by a druggist as the two men who had purchased cocaine from him. Now, remember, this is the late 1800s, so yes, you could still purchase cocaine over the counter. An analysis of Pearl's stomach showed that there was a quantity of cocaine in her stomach. Now, there are various stories about what happened to Pearl from this point on. It was reported that one of them attempted to give her an abortion and something went terribly wrong. In another report, she had been taken to a doctor to have the doctor perform an abortion. Yet another story says that there was likely no abortion at all and that the whole thing was a setup just to kill Pearl. Whatever the reasons leading up to Pearl's death, she was killed and in an attempt to conceal the identity of Pearl's body, they cut off her head to ensure that she would not be identified. She was, however, later identified, believe it or not, by one of her shoes, which had a number at the bottom, which then they traced back to the maker of the shoe and found out who purchased it. Physicians and surgeons who were in on the case said that they believed that Pearl's head had been severed with a dissecting knife and that when she was stabbed in the back of the neck, it brought her out of the effects of the drug and she threw up her hands and it caused her fingers to be severely cut. They were also convinced that Pearl was murdered at the spot where she was found, just a few miles away from where Bobby Mackey's would later stand, near Highland Avenue and Alexandria Pike. Bloodhounds tracked the suspects to what would be Bobby Mackey's location, but the head was never found. Now, even though authorities have searched and searched, they could never find Pearl's head. And even though Scott and Alonso were arrested and charged with murder, they never revealed where Pearl's head was. Some theorized that they threw her head into the Ohio River from the suspension bridge. Others thought that her head had been burned in the furnace at the dental college where the men went to school. Legend has it that they threw the head in the well at the now-closed slaughterhouse as part of a satanic ritual because Scott was into that kind of thing and he performed a ritual with Pearl's head. Now, there has not ever been any evidence of Scott being a Satanist. However, how would you even go about proving or disproving this, especially in 1895? You still have to have some level of evil inside of you to cut off someone's head, right? The well in the basement of Bobby Mackey's, where supposedly Pearl's head was thrown, which we pretty much know it wasn't, but anyway, it's now referred to as the portal to hell. Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling were sentenced to hang at the same time, which didn't go exactly as planned. Upon the floor being released, both of them continued to struggle for about 10 minutes before they died. You know, in other words, it wasn't a quick death for them. The rumor mill states that Alonzo said he would come back and haunt the area after he died. 
Now, this is something that can be disproven. According to the Indianapolis News in 1897, what was actually said was, quote, I am not guilty of this crime. I say this with the full expectation of meeting my God in a few seconds, unquote. In the 1930s, the building was eventually purchased by E.A. Buck Brady, who happened to be a local mobster. Brady turned the building into a bar and casino called the Primrose. At the same time, a bar nearby in nearby Newport, which is about five miles away, called the Beverly Hills Club, was getting, the owners were getting a little upset because the Primrose began to take customers away from their business. The issue was that the Beverly Hills Club was run by the Cleveland Four, which is a team of gangsters from the Cleveland area known as the Cleveland Syndicate. They began to harass Buck, trying to get him to give up the bar. And after some time, Buck became pretty tired of this harassment, so he attempted to assassinate one of the gang's members. What he did is he waited for one of the gangsters outside of a location that they were known to visit often. As the man came out and got into his car, Buck fired at him with a shotgun. Now, although he was wounded, he wasn't killed. And as Buck tried to get away, he crashed his car and had to find a way to escape on foot. He was later found by the police, arrested, and charged with attempted murder. Now, when it came time for Buck's trial, the man that he shot at refused to identify him as the shooter, so all charges were dropped. However, this doesn't mean that the syndicate was going to just let him off the hook, right? Buck was then visited by the gangsters and was told to either give them the deed to the Primrose or they would kill him. He obviously signed over the deed and after taking ownership of the club, the Cleveland Syndicate renamed it the Latin Quarter. The Latin Quarter was a place known to have been a brothel and a casino. Legend has it that one of the owner's daughters, Johanna, who was also a dancer at the club, became pregnant by a man named Robert Randall. When Johanna's father found out, he killed Robert. When Johanna found out that Robert had been killed by her dad, she poisoned her father and killed herself in one of the dressing rooms. Now, there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of discrepancy here as well, as historical re- records show that only one of the Cleveland Syndicate's uh, members had a daughter, but her name was not Johanna. Aside from this, it's very doubtful that a gangster's daughter would be performing as a dancer in the club. Now, this does not mean that Johanna does not exist. It merely means that she might not have been the daughter of the gangster. Fast forward to 1961, Sheriff George Ratterman began to eliminate organized crime in the area and eventually shut down the Latin Quarter. Now, after it was shut down, various businesses were in and out of the location. One of the businesses was a biker bar that earned the nickname The Bloody Bucket. And this was due to the frequent fights and shootings that occurred there and the mess that would have to be cleaned up frequently using a mop and bucket. This business was closed in 1977. Bobby Mackey then purchased the building in 1978. He felt drawn to the building as if he had been here before. 
He had taken his young daughter with him to the location, but after she stepped inside, she walked out and refused to go back in. Even as late as 2008, she has never gone back inside. Bobby came in and tore down walls and removed a large kitchen, but kept the original stage. Where people used to play casino games, Bobby put in its place a mechanical bull named El Turbo. On any given weekend, the place is crowded and several signs hang around saying, Welcome to Bobby Mackey's. Enjoy your evening. Now, this was before incidents began to happen. After Bobby had taken ownership, a young man, barely 18, stopped by to ask for a job. He could do some painting and remodeling for Bobby, any kind of work that Bobby could give him. Bobby agreed, and that's when Carl Lawson became such an indispensable part of Bobby Mackey's, so much so that Bobby gave him the apartment above the bar, and Carl became the bar's caretaker. Carl would later state that every morning at about 6 a.m., he heard what sounded like an army marching through the bar. Carl locked himself in his apartment and he slept with a shotgun. He was so afraid. The walk up the stairs to his apartment felt as if someone had turned on an air conditioner or opened a freezer. Carl would talk of hearing phantom footsteps after everyone had gone home or feeling as if he was being watched. Now, eventually, Carl would tell Bobby about these things, but Bobby didn't want to hear it. He didn't want Carl to repeat it because he was afraid that it would hurt his business. Now, over the years, Carl would try and talk with Bobby about the weird things that were happening, but Bobby didn't want any part of it. Bobby's wife, Janet, however, believed Carl. Before Janet passed away in 2009, she talked about how the building itself just felt hostile. She also claimed to have been pushed down a flight of stairs by something that wasn't there. Since that time, she refused to enter the building by herself. No one had any idea about what was happening inside the bar, until a writer and one of Bobby's friends named Doug Hensley came around in 1989. So one night, Bobby and his friend were just chatting when Bobby started to talk about the things that Carl had been saying. This, of course, got Doug pretty excited, so he approached Carl about it and got frustrated when Carl wouldn't tell him anything. After Doug went back to Bobby and said, you know, Carl's not telling me anything about it, Bobby told Doug that it was because he told Carl not to say anything. After plenty of hounding, Bobby finally gave in and told Carl just to go ahead and tell him. Now remember, Bobby believes none of this. So Carl tells Doug about what has been happening. Carl began having nightmares about something in the basement, and one entity named Charlie seemed to torment Carl. Charlie, in these dreams, would tell Carl over and over again to go into the basement and dig. So one time, Carl did, and he found a well filled with dirt under the floorboards. To Bobby, it was just a hole filled with dirt, but Carl was convinced it was a portal to hell and that there weren't just ghosts within the bar, but demons. So Doug, the writer, 
started to talk with other staff members and he further communicated with Carl to get some more information. And in 1989, the book, The Terror at Bobby Mackey's World came out. Now in the 1980s, there was this fear just sweeping across the United States and it was referred to as the Satanic Panic, which started with the publication of a book called, quote, Michelle Remembers, that used the discredited practice of recovered memory therapy to make claims about satanic rituals and abuse. Now, the timing of the book's release from the Bobby Mackey book's release and the widespread satanic panic meant that the book began to get a lot of media attention. Big names like Jerry Springer and Geraldo began to call on Doug, Bobby, Janet, and Carl to do interviews with them. As the book's popularity grew, people started approaching Doug, the author, with even more stories from the bar. This led to further editions of the book with the final version called Hell's Gate, Terror at Bobby Mackey's World, was released in 2005. Now, prior to this happening in August of 1991, it is said that Carl had become demonically possessed, and the Reverend Glenn Cole spent six hours performing an exorcism on Carl. The exorcism took place where the old kitchen was in the building. After the exorcism had taken place, one of the walls caught fire. The fire department couldn't explain what could have caused it. Bobby viewed the video of Carl's exorcism and was shocked at how unlike Carl it was. He kept saying, that wasn't Carl. I've known Carl since he was a teenager, and Carl is no actor, not by a long shot. This led Doug to write yet another book called The Exorcism of Carl Lawson. After these books were released, naturally people started to become curious, and they asked if they could take a look in the basement of Bobby Mackey's. So employees started to take people down into the basement. The official tours began around 2005. Even years after his exorcism, Carl still says he can feel the spirits. He even has a door in his apartment which reads, quote, go away, meant specifically for the spirits that bother him so much. Carl passed away in 2012. After his passing, another member of Bobby Mackey's, who has been at the bar for years, was giving a tour. One of the tour's guests had cut his finger on his car door as he was coming in, and the tour guide, Wanda, asked him if he wanted a Band-Aid, and he said, no, it should be fine. So as they're going through the tour, they get to the area where Carl had his exorcism performed, and the man asked Wanda, if you don't mind, I think I'll take that Band-Aid. It won't stop bleeding. As she left to get a Band-Aid for him, an EVP was captured that people believe was Carl saying, look at the Band-Aid, Mikey. Now, EVPs, or Electronic Voice Phenomenon, It's a method by which you can capture voices that you cannot hear with your human ears. It's usually a mini tape recorder, but sometimes another device that sweeps radio stations at such a high rate that it's impossible to pick up the actual station. 
uh, but it does allow for spirits to communicate through the device. After Carl died, there was a memorial set up inside the bar, and one of the previous groups that had been at Bobby Mackey's and investigated at least twice, they were hesitant to even walk inside the bar. One of the men said that even for a memorial, he refused because his wife said he was a completely different person whenever he came home from that place. Now, another group of investigators came in and they were complete skeptics. They even brought some Bibles with them. Now, this is not unusual as people use Bibles for protection. However, when the manager saw the Bibles, she suggested that they might not want to bring them inside due to what could happen. When they insisted, the manager said that they were, quote, on their own. During the investigation, there is video coverage of this same woman who had brought the Bibles in, getting grabbed by the shoulders, lifted off the floor, and tossed to the cement ground. One of the staff members who has worked there for years in 2008 was in the basement fixing a pipe when he felt two hands grab him under his armpits, lift him up, and throw him against a door. Now, Wanda herself, you know, the woman who was giving the tours and went and got the Band-Aid, she was attacked shortly after she began to help renovate the building. A door was rattling, and she told someone just, you know, it's making so much noise, just go ahead and open it. So when the door opened, an unseen force hit her so hard that she fell to the ground and even blacked out. As the renovations began and as they continued, Wanda suggested to the owners that it might not be such a great idea. But Bobby and his current wife uh, refused to believe that it was causing issues. So they continued to renovate the building. Voices have been mimicked on tape. People feel sick to their stomachs. They feel dread. They feel sorrow. Those who have worked there for long periods of time have felt bouts of oppression to the point where they have acted violently and completely out of character. Uh, In the basement, you'll hear knocks and movements. Women's hair is stroked. Footsteps are heard walking above you when you're in the basement and no one is in the building. People feel as if a weight was pressing up against their chest as they walk into certain areas of the building. It feels like you're being watched all the time, and you often feel cool breezes going by you. Another man named J.R. Costigan says that he was punched and kicked by a ghost inside the men's restroom. He said he was washing his hands, and when he looked up, he saw an apparition that came at him, punching and kicking. He went to Bobby and told him, and Bobby laughed, thinking he was kidding. Another version had Costigan claim that a dark-haired apparition appeared after Costigan walked around the restroom and dared the ghost to show itself. So this man turned around and sued Bobby Mackey's in small claims court, seeking $1,000 in damages and demanded that a sign be posted to warn of the ghost's presence. Now, the judge, of course, threw out the case, but upon Bobby's lawyer's advice, he posted a sign at the bar's front entrance. And this is the sign that everybody sees when they walk in that says, warning to our patrons, it's reported to be haunted. In yet another incident in the bathroom, 
another man saw the, a metal garbage can slam against the opposite wall. As he turned, he saw a man with a handlebar mustache, and the man kept saying, die game, over and over. One of the bar managers said that she came in to open one day, and the jukebox was playing. Thinking that someone had left it running, she walked over only to find out that the jukebox wasn't even plugged in. The song that was playing was the anniversary waltz, which didn't even exist on the jukebox. Employees have their own stories. They'll see things, they'll hear things, and they'll feel as if they're being followed or watched. That should be noted, as I've mentioned, that Bobby Mackey himself believes in none of this. He was embarrassed about it at first, but then says that it got bigger than him, and all he cares about is the music. He eventually did allow the ghost tours and even lockdowns with paranormal teams to take place. He didn't care what they did, as long as he didn't have to hear about it. Now, when you go on one of the ghost tours, you are first required to sign a release form that says you will not hold Bobby Mackey's liable in the event that something happens to you. You are let outside the bar to get to the basement. It's the only entrance available. The basement is pretty much a storage room filled with non-used items from the bar. It's old and dusty, as you might imagine, from a building as old as Bobby Mackey's. One of the most jarring noises that you'll hear, and it's totally normal, but it's very jarring, uh, since the tours take place when the bar is open, is that of bottles and cans being sent down a chute Two containers in the basement. As your tour continues, the guide will point out historical items or locations where a supernatural event has occurred. One interesting item in the basement is a bullet hole ridden door. You'll see the Latin Quarter dressing rooms where the women would prepare before their shows. And as you enter one of the rooms, still with its original mirror and counter, the story of Johanna comes up. As mentioned earlier, it is said that Johanna, who was not only a dancer, but the daughter of one of the owners, became pregnant. When her father found out, he had the man killed, and when Johanna became aware of this, she first poisoned her father and then herself in that dressing room where you are standing. It is said that you may even smell her perfume, which smells like rose petals. Visitors have claimed to have their clothing tugged on, feel something touching them, or even capture an image of her in the mirror. Now, as mentioned earlier, it's highly doubtful that a mobster would allow his daughter to be a dancer in the nightclub. However, this doesn't mean that a dancer named Johanna didn't exist. She just may not have been the daughter of the owner. As far as Pearl's head goes, you know, the prevailing rumor is that it was thrown into the well at the bottom of Bobby Mackey's as part of a satanic ritual. However, all we know is that the bloodhounds tracked her scent to near the location of what would be the bar, but no one knows for sure, even to this day, what became a Pearl's head. And as we also know, the well is called the portal to hell. It's been filled with dirt for some time. There is another staircase in the basement which leads nowhere and has been dubbed the Stairway to Heaven. In yet another location, you are taken to the Wall of Faces. Now, this wall does indeed appear as though it has a variety of faces within it, although there is a phenomenon called matrixing. 
Now, this means that the human brain will try and make sense of what it is seeing. And as such, if you are told the image is the face of a demon, you see the face of a demon. Dozens, if not hundreds of paranormal groups, those very well known and those not so well known, have made their way into Bobby Mackey's to do investigations. One group had a member attacked and three long scratches appeared on his back, enough to draw blood. Bobby Mackey's even has their own official team called Gatekeeper Paranormal. Now, in one case, the group caught an EVP of a woman's voice that said, quote, she does not like all these people in here. Although I did take a look at Gatekeeper's Paranormal Paranormal's website, um, it doesn't appear to have been updated very often, Um In some cases, the last update was in 2013, so I don't know if the team is still in the official capacity of Bobby Mackey's um, paranormal team, although it does still state that on the website. Um, In another case, an EVP was captured that when asked how many spirits were with them, it responded with seven. Groups have brought in clergymen who have been attacked. Items that groups have brought in have been unnaturally moved in such a way that there's no discernible way that the object could have gotten into the position that it was in all by itself. People have reported that after leaving the ghost tour or having been there for some time, they'll have nightmares after arriving at home or even feel as if there's a presence in their own house. Video recordings have been captured, which seem to show shadow figures moving across the doorway. At one time, a car lost control right outside of Bobby Mackey's and ran into a telephone pole. It killed the two people in the vehicle. The first policeman at the scene, while he was waiting for help, had a woman come out of Bobby Mackey's and hand him a couple of tablecloths to lay over the bodies. When the officer returned to the bar to thank the woman... He found that at the time, the bar was closed and locked, and no one working there fit the description of the woman he was looking for. Whatever haunts Bobby Mackey's is still there, and it still frightens the hell out of people. While the ongoing rumors of it being a mobster's daughter or the head of Pearl Bryan have pretty much been debunked, there is something there, and probably many somethings, and they're not friendly. Whether or not the well is a portal to hell is yet to be discerned, but if all the investigations have taught us anything, it's that most of the negative activity does surround the well and the rooms within the basement. Now, as of this recording, Bobby Mackey's is still a well-known establishment that's up and running. They also continue to offer ghost tours. So if you're ever in the wilder Kentucky area, you may just want to stop by. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. You can find all of the sources for this story on the beachhouse34.com website or by clicking on the links within our Instagram page at beachhouse34podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time.